Chapter 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. We know about that Passover. We know about when when a when a Herod is part of uh, bringing one out at that time. Of course, the uh, the other Herod you might remember it goes back to the time of Christ, uh, some forty years. Uh, uh, of course, Jesus had been born, but we're going back maybe something like maybe maybe 11 years now. The church is spreading out somewhere in that vicinity. And we start to touch on the family of Herod again. The first of the Herods, uh, the Herod the Great, he was Idumean. He had slightly a bit of Jewishness in him, but he was from uh, Idumea, that from that family. And so he appeared on the scene somewhere around 41 B.C. All right, that kind of gives you an idea when when that was happening for him. And we know Matthew 2, where he was killing every uh, um, boy child at two years and under, and we know about that. He he's a very wicked man. Uh, he had been married ten times. Of course, he's the kind that would kill his own children or kill uh, his uh, wives. But he was married so many times, he had a lot of children. One of them happens to be this one right here. This this Herod. Herod Agrippa I. And he, had, he was actually educated in Rome. He was cultivated. And whenever he wound up being a leader back here in the uh, Israeli land, uh, he wanted to get the good graces, graces of the Jewish people he wanted to, for them to be on his side, so he sought to be popular, and uh, he would really work at doing that. He was a ruling power at this time when we were into Acts 12. He's a tragic figure, and I will tell you, he fights against God here, and it's a folly. It's absolute foolishness to go against God. And we have many government leaders that are fighting up against the one true God. Absolute folly and one day it will be judged. So when you see all the things and just absolute ridiculousness uh, happening in our time, God is going to do something about that. So, at this time you remember, if you back up into chapter 11, near the end of it in verse 28, at the end of it, it's talking about a famine all over the world. This took place in the reign of Claudius. So, somewhere about that time, that's the reason we know that this is somewhere around 41 B.C. because if you trace history in the Roman calendar, which comes into play here, that's, that's pretty good in dating things. Uh, this uh, would be about 44 A.D., uh, possibly somewhere around there. We don't know for sure, but um, Claudius is still reigning. He's in Rome, so definitely be in that time. Uh, maybe the full effect of the famine hasn't uh, in there completely, but uh, it definitely has hit. And so Herod, at this same time, is set out to lay hands on some prominent Christian people because he wants to get more popular. Now, he may not necessarily be anti-Christian, I'm sure he doesn't he doesn't care for them, but I mean it's not like hey he's just picking on Christians to be picking on them. I don't think he really even knows the difference between them and um Judaism, but he knows that the Jews don't like Christianity, right, at this time. And so rather than being a religious thing to him, uh like all the rest of the Herods, he wants to exalt his power and uh his Legacy. He wants to be even more famous. He wants to get along with the Jews real well in the land of Israel. And if he can have good relationships with them, then his power can even go up. So the Jews hate the Christians. He knows that. And so he can use that. 
So, um, we, we look at his character. We know he's a very evil, wicked man. He's a Roman playboy is really what it amounts to. Uh, he's an egotist. It's all about him. Everything is about him. And he's willing to buy and sell favors of whatever it is. He plays the game very well. Uh, already has a place of prominence in the uh, area of Judea. He wants more prominence. And so if he can endear the, the Jews to be on his side, uh, he'll do whatever it takes. So he's thinking, why not kill one of the great leaders of this movement? So he gets James, brother of John, the first martyr. That's an apostle. Stephen wasn't an apostle. Now James is. That's really hitting very close to home, isn't it? And um, he was executed by a sword. Scripture says here, uh, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, I guess. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Why, why is the sword mentioned here? Well, in the Jewish Talmud, in the Jewish Talmud, the way to kill somebody that was leading people to worship other gods was to use the sword. And so that's what that's saying. He uh, he's telling the Jews that hey listen I'm in agreement with you and um, these guys are leading people to worship false gods and other gods and and so that was in the Talmudic law if you saw a blasphemer like that then you use the sword and and you uh, kill him that way um, boy you know he's going to gain quite the position here with the Jews with this um, the Jewish leaders have to love it. I think it definitely pleased them so greatly. So now, he's not only going to go after somebody like the prominence of James, but how about the biggest leader? The most prominent apostle is who? Peter. If that got them going, watch this. We'll get the best. He got the second one. The second, you know, to them, that's what he's saying. They're all equal. But as far as prominent names, we know Peter was making quite the mark in his preaching. His evangelism is all over the land at this time. Um, This this guy is into killing uh, their leader. He has no concern for righteousness. He has no concern for justice. No concern for the law. He doesn't care about it. He can do whatever he wants. He's the king. And uh, plus, uh, people are going to go along with him. Peter is the key man. Powerful preacher. A dynamic apostle, isn't he? And so if you get this guy, uh, so he arrested him too. Kills one, gets another. Gets the big one. Uh, James, uh, of course, is executed. We talked about that. Go back to Matthew 20, and verse 22. And here's something you would remember. You have um, James and John, sons of uh, thunder, but also the sons of Zebedee. And their mother is with them. Verse 20, it says, they're bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Well, they said to him, We are able. (laughs) He said to them, My cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared for by my Father. My cup you shall drink. Well, he certainly did. Pretty early on during the time of uh, the early church here. And uh, that was one of them. That was James and John. James was the first apostle. This this happened to him first. Now, it's kind of interesting. You have squads there. Um, when when you now he go as he goes to Peter. Okay? Peter's arrested. How many squads of soldiers does it take to guard somebody? <laughs> oh, we have a lot of men here. Four and four and four and four? Is that 16? Something like that? And it wasn't because Peter was so strong. You know, 16 Roman soldiers versus this one guy. 
But maybe the Christians might come and rescue him, or who knows what might happen. So you have all these guards. But they would probably have killed him there or by the next day. The problem is, it's the days of unleavened bread. It's the days of Passover. There are eight days of that. And so it's like they have to wait. Just like during the time of Christ, it was not the time to have him crucified, but he wound up getting crucified on Passover, didn't he? They they didn't really wait. I think originally that's what they kind of had in mind and wait the people get out. But in, in God's timing, it was going to be the Passover because it had to fit the type that He had set up. So it came about that time. So anyway, um, you have a full drama happen here, full tension. Focuses on on the king. He wants all the attention on himself. He's already killed one apostle. He has Peter in prison. Word has gotten out that he's going to kill him after the Passover. And that's going to be very soon. He is fighting against God because he wants all the glory. He doesn't care about, care about the true one God. And monarchs all down through history have done the same thing. Because usually the pride goes to them. And you'll look at any... Uh, king, monarch, one who desires or wants to be king, uh, they can um, dedicate everything to do whatever they want to do and to get the glory. And uh, of course, we, I think we've uh, maybe kind of experienced that a little bit in our own way. I've heard actually people calling whenever he is, uh, the president that we have was elected. I had people come into our store that were calling themselves Christians and they were going around, we have our king. It wasn't Christ. It was our president. I heard them talking loudly in the store and it really got my ear. I said, you have to be kidding me. This is their king. And they wanted him to be the king. The king, the deliverer for them. It blew my mind. I said, this this is amazing. Well, um, anyway, when we see the sovereign will of God in all of this, He lets it happen as long as He desires. By the way, turn back to Acts 4. Peter is kind of used to this jail thing already. This time it's a little more serious in that he knows that it could be his time I'm not so sure he's convinced necessarily that it is. In Acts 4.28, uh, 4.27, it brings in another Herod here. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. This is Peter's message. Whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. You notice there is God. It's all in His purpose. And He predestined those things to happen with what happened to Christ. Yet at the same time, men are responsible for doing this. But yet, God is the one controlling this and has it in His mind. And then we go on down to... uh, on down through 30. Now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So, you have a prayer. It's a prayer for boldness and that um, God takes note of what's going on and that His power would extend throughout all the land there. And of course, they prayed together. The whole place was shaken. Holy Spirit filled people. And of course, they spoke the Word of God with boldness. And that's kind of a pattern. Now, what kind of person does it take to engage God in combat? Of course, you've seen the atheist. They take on God in combat. Say so He doesn't even exist. And it's a dangerous thing because Scripture tells us that God always fights back. Look in Jeremiah 21, 5. 
He's a warrior. 21.5 This is Jeremiah telling us this through uh, the Holy Spirit-inspired Word. I myself, this is God, will war against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, even in anger and wrath and great indignation. So God is a God who does get angry. He does bring on wrath. He is indignant with people. I saw a video the other day on Facebook. And uh, I wish I could think of the guy it was, but he was out on the street doing some street evangelism. Really, a good street evangelism. It's a wretch, wretched... What is it, Bob? Yeah, Todd Friel. Yeah, good believer in the Lord. And he was just saying that God is a God of judgment and He is going to judge sin. Uh, He was also getting to the point of the good news, but some Christian lady comes up there to help him out. Have you seen that one? And yeah, she says, uh, it's almost like she was saying, that's not my God. That's you know we have to think of him as being a god of love. Well, that's that's true. He is a god of love and god of grace. But she did not want him to be talking about people are sinners and they're falling short of the glory of God, and that they are bound and doomed for hell unless the grace of God comes and then if people trust in the Savior. And of course. Um, she kept saying it. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that you're saying you're you're showing this kind of God. And she was like saying he's not that kind of God. He's not one that judges. Meaning well, but oh so wrong, because she only had half the God right. That's idolatry. To accept one part of God but not the other. And so we just read this passage in Jeremiah that shows that God. Is uh, has fear, fury and anger and wrath. Church of Pergamos, God and Jesus said, Repent or I will come unto you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Right. But He will. The, um, it's folly. It's absolute foolishness of the age for people to continue to fight against God. And uh, they're losing. Looks like they're winning, but they're losing. Okay, God hears our prayers. God knows what's going on. He knows what's happening. He knows when the persecution is happening. And my, you see some of those videos that are on Facebook all the time about some of the Christians being um, burned up, being... Uh, killed in different ways uh, in a lot of the Islamic lands. Uh, some of them are j- just horrendous things. And of course, we've heard uh, the latest even some of our um, reporters now. Uh, one of the reporters just uh, two days ago or so, I think, um, had his head cut off, I guess. He was killed, martyred. Yeah. I don't think you can say martyred. He's just a United States reporter. Uh, but but to them, United States uh, are the Christians. They're little Satan, or big Satan, and little Satan is Israel. So when they look at uh, the nation of uh, America, they call them Christians. All the whole people, Christians are infidels, unbelievers. But God is sovereign, isn't He? God hears our prayers, starting in verse 5. So Peter was kept in the prison... But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward. You know what that means. (laughs) Peter was... (laughs) Now catch this. (laughs) Sleeping between two soldiers. Bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, that means something. (laughs) Behold, an angel of the Lord 
suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. He went out, continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. (laughs) And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth His angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, and where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came up to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, Because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, He described to them how the Lord had kept him out of the prison. And he said, Report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left, went to another place. God hears our prayers. Church gets on their knees. They began to pray. They did the right thing. James 5.16. Now, this this is the James that is the brother of our Lord, half-brother. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The effectual fervent prayer. Prayer is the key to opening the storehouse of God's power. It still is today. The word there for fervent is ektenos. And they were fervently doing this. I mean, really fervent prayer. I mean, it means to stretch a muscle. It's a medical term. To stretch a muscle to its full capacity. To use it in its fullest way. All the full capacity. It uh, means earnestly. It means unceasing. It means intense. Um, intense in service. We'll, we'll see that it, uh, in Scripture when this word is used. Intense in prayer. Uh, in anguish, in intensity, earnestness, total effort. I mean, they're really praying. I mean, they are not messing around. This is really a fervent prayer. So let's go to Luke 22, verse 44. This is what the church does, should be doing. Being in agony, this is Jesus. Praying, Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying very fervently at that same word, like stretching things to the limit. Of course he was. His sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. That's another time that it is. And of course, in our James 5.16 that I just read about fervently, that's the same word there. Uh, Intense. So they are praying intensely. Is that a word? Well, what's Peter doing? He's relaxed. He's sleeping. And I think it actually says something. It might be positive in in the sense. Um, Remember in 1 Peter 5 7? Of course, he wrote 1 Peter, right? Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. I think he's already kind of learned something. He's been in jail before and been other things going on. He knows about the persecution. I think he knows the timetable. He knows that this is the end of that Passover week. And he knows what's going to happen 
at that time or what they're going to try to do. <laughs> He's sleeping through this. Now, I don't know how you guys would do. I'm not so sure I'd sleep very well. Um, but an old saint said it like this. And somebody said this, actually. Or wrote this out. It almost sounds like it came out of Scripture, though, too. He was like that old saint who was sleeping through a horrible storm in a boat. Somebody said, aren't you concerned? And he reminded them that the psalmist said that the Lord never sleeps and never slumbers. And if that's true of the Lord, there's no sense in both of us staying awake. <laughs> While the Lord is awake right now, I can go ahead and go to sleep because He has this under control. It's pretty good. He's sleepy. He's groggy. You ever been woken out of a really good sleep? Oh, what's going on? That's <laughs> exactly what happened. He's, he's thinking he's in some kind of a dream, some kind of a vision. It's not really happening at first. Remember the, the vision that he had uh, on the uh, roof at Joppa? You know, he, so he's probably thinking it's something like that. And uh, so he's going out, you know, this, this angel in verse 9. He continues to follow. He didn't really know what was being done, what was going to happen. He didn't know it as real. He just having a vision. He's in a fog. You know, he just woke up. And they passed the first guard. They passed the second guard. It doesn't tell us how he did that. That they did it. And they came before the iron gate. Get up to the iron gate, and the iron gate just opens by itself. Just like it, uh, you had a remote control or something. You know, it has the little light on it probably and you just boom hit that no the angel just is right there with Peter and it just opens wide open. This is all supernatural. And then just like that, the angel disappears immediately. That's when Peter gets the idea this is really happening. <laughs> That's a strong, massive gate outside. And it just opened. You see all of Herod's power is no contest for God. He just bursts that gate wide open. God can do that. It's like the breath of His mouth. And He shattered those shackles, whether it be the angel doing that or God working through it. Hebrews 1.14 says angels do that. They're ministering spirits. And He's gone. So we, we need to be reminded there are no prisons can hold a servant of God whom God wants free. Now, I can see that spiritually. But if that were to be physically that same too, he usually doesn't operate that way today. That is out of the norm. Uh, If a Christian is in there, he might be in there just like anybody else and for the whole time. So we just can't take a Scripture and say, well, you know, if I pray hard enough and and believe this hard enough, just like Peter, I can get out of here. Uh, God will just open a gate for me. Yeah. <laughs> and just let it happen supernaturally. Yeah. So sometimes when we see things happen in um, the Bible, especially here in the book of Acts, we, uh, even though it is a supernatural God, He can do that. And he does do that. And never take it away from Him. It doesn't mean that we are to claim everything here and it's always to be that way or we can get into the health, wealth, gospel and say, well, that's what He means for everybody at all times. And uh, that's not the rule here. Usually, whenever a supernatural thing happens, that's what it is. It's a miracle. And if it happened all the time, it wouldn't be a miracle. It would be natural. Um, it would be nice if that happened. And it's not saying we shouldn't be praying. We should be praying. should be praying that, hey, God, if this is Your will. But if it's not His will, because then you go back to the other side, Well, if they would have been praying for who? James, maybe he wouldn't have been killed. We can start getting into that mode. No, it was God's plan that he be taken. But yet Peter is not to be taken. And how do you explain that? Sovereign will of God. That's the only way I can explain it. It was well, you can say, well, they were praying for Peter, but they weren't praying for James. I don't think that would be the case. But I I can tell you, I think that Peter is like this. I think that he's seen enough of what's happened that he could take rest. Maybe he's just flat out tired. I'm sure that's part of it. But 
Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. When the storms come, when things come at you full head on, think on those things. I, I can't think of one of the better texts to use than that right there. I don't know how many times I've used it on people whenever anxiety comes up and it says, here's what it says. Do this. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And here we go. The God of peace will be with you. That's a promise. We may not be delivered out of those, but He'll deliver us through those during those times. They're praying so fervently. <laughs> and when Peter comes to the door and the servant says, it's Peter at the door, and they say, you're out of your mind. Are you exactly. And she keeps insisting, and they say it must be faith. Then when they see Peter, they're astonished. Wow, it really works. <laughs> Why would they be astonished? They've been praying for it. That can be me. I can pray and really pray hard for especially at a time when things are difficult for me or somebody else somebody is really going through a hard time or a physical battle and you pray every day you pray, and you mean it but how many times has he actually answered and i kind of forgot yeah or i just don't believe it yeah or i've had to answer for it very deliberately you know, I'll call my daughter or someone and say, you are not going to believe what happened. <laughs> well, that's what we were praying for. <laughs> Why shouldn't we believe yeah. that, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the way we are. That's the church, isn't it? I'm glad they were praying fervently. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes we pray fervently and yet still have unbelief. That's right. So that's a good point, Janice. I think you hit it. I know you hit it right on the head. I think that's one of the main lessons that we can grab out of this. When I read this, I just have to keep from laughing. I think, oh my gosh, this is so ridiculous. This is us, isn't it? Yeah. But it should make us want to believe, even and not believe in ourselves or our power to believe can make it happen. I mean, that's that is new age stuff. But but what does he say? Believe in God. That he can do this, and he, if it's his will, he will. So we really shouldn't be surprised, but um, often we are. But it might be years down the road. It might be instantly. We, God, you know, we can't put him in a in a in a box. <laughs> and uh, you know, just learning that, learning it. Look in Psalm four, verse eight. Well, there's so much to take out of this, even though it's a historical story, and it's kind of funny, isn't it? You know, there's a lot of humor in this in some ways. Very uh, reminding to ourselves. Psalm 4, 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Now, I don't know if Peter thought of this verse. It doesn't say. He may... Have he may not have, but it would be interesting if he would have thought about that. I'm sure he knew the God of peace. He had to remember, maybe starting to think about the storm and where Jesus was asleep, and that was was that the same storm where uh, then Peter winds. No, no, no. This is where Jesus is coming, and Peter walks out on the water. That was another one, wasn't it? But there was a time when Jesus was sleeping in, in the boat, and we know that, boom, then all of a sudden they're dry land. And uh, I'll both lie down and sleep in peace. In peace. Look at Isaiah 41.10. Isn't it great to know when you believe in a sovereign God, you can do these things. Now, this is out of the Old Testament, isn't it? Do not fear... Isaiah 41.10 For I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. Don't look about all the things around you. That's a great storm. Don't concentrate on that. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that's that's the omnipotent, powerful hand. I, I mean, it's just saying with all His all might. Oh, 
He could have been. Yeah, this is sober But there's one thing to think on. Jesus had made a promise in John 21. Peter is seeing, was it John? Walking. And he said, well, what about him? Now, that John was going to live a long life. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know. But he did tell Peter what? Let's go back there just for a moment. Huh? John 21. Appears to the um, seven disciples and all of a sudden you have fish. Jesus is cooking for them. And you get near the end there. You know, Peter, do you love me? That kind of thing. Um, Verse 20, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, uh, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? That's a disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that testimony is true. Anyway, um, he says, you follow me. You keep following me. He doesn't know when his time is going to be, and of course he uh, will later lose his life because of martyrdom. But he says, it's it's not for you to know those particular things. The thing is, you just follow me. You just trust me. You just do what I say. You just do this. Follow me. And uh, so, uh, you have Peter obeying here after he has, I think, somewhat, probably maybe some confidence. Maybe he has been concerned. And uh, the ministry of angels play a big part here in Acts. And we just move on. You have Rhoda then. You have Peter knocking. He knocks at the door of the gate there. And Rhoda comes to the door. She answers. Peter wants to get out of the street. You know, he doesn't want to just be out there just being seen. And uh, he just doesn't want to hang around there. He's, you know, he's been obedient and moving around doing what the angel said. But. kind of a little bit more in a safer place, but he's not going to stay there where they're at. It's probably known that Christians meet there. That happens to be John John Mark's house or Mark's house, which his uh, mother is uh, also called, what, Mary there. Um, That could have been also the place possibly where the, um, uh, the Lord's Supper was done, that Last Supper. Could have been the place. We don't know. It's a rather large house. If you already have uh, much of the church, some of the church meeting there. Um, anyway, she just leaves everything. Doesn't get Peter in. She goes and announces to everybody who's praying right there at that time. She's so excited she forgot to let him in. That's how excited she knew the prayer had been answered. She knew it, and she's so excited she just lost. It. She's thrilled. Why is she thrilled? Because God just answered the prayer they've been doing. And what do they say? You're out of your mind. You're crazy. I mean, are we supposed to believe that God answers prayer? (laughs) What are you supposed to be doing, right? She kept insisting. They kept saying it's His angel. I mean, here, they literally invent a theology here to accommodate their unbelief. <laughs> now, there is a theology that the Jews had that uh, it's not really taught in the New Testament that the Jewish belief is that everybody had his own angel. Everybody has one personal angel. We're not really taught that. We know that there are ministering spirits and angels do do that, but you know that's how you've gotten the, the theory of the guardian angel. You know, and everybody has the one guardian angel. Well, they take it from there. And, of course, our Hebrews 1.14 I mentioned earlier. Um, there's prayer here. There is doubt. There's unbelief. 
There is belief. <laughs> and all sorts of things are happening in this, and it makes us kind of smile. But uh, aren't you glad that God answers fervent prayer even when our prayers are faithless? <laughs> And that's what Janice is saying there. Anyway, Peter declares, you know, he he mentions to them um, something um, as we move on. And we know he continued knocking. And he motions them, be quiet. He told them how he got out of there. Well, I guess. Wouldn't that have been great news? Listen to this, guys. Here's how it happened. He says, now go tell these things to James. And some people say, uh, doesn't he know he's already dead? Well, he's not talking about that James. He's talking about the James that is considered to be um, the leader of the church at that time uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, that's James, the half-brother of the Lord, and the brethren. Go tell him and the others. Then he left, went to another place. He didn't stay there. He just had to tell them, show them that God answers prayers, told them the story, and he lit out of there. And I want to tell you something. There's a transition that happens right here. We don't know where he went. And you don't hear too much of him. He just fades off the scene. He's been prevalent in the book of Acts, the first 12 chapters, hasn't he? We're introduced to Paul in chapter 13. We've already seen him, but he becomes the main force now from 13 on. Now, finish quickly. I know it's time. But in 18 through 25, God not only answers prayers, but He deals with the enemies. Here's the rest of the story. Paul Harvey, right? Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers, I guess, as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that he be led away. they be led away to ex- execution. Kind of king he is. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. With one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum, began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man! And immediately, An angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Wow. The lesson here is simple and clear. And it's the same story throughout all of Holy Scripture. Only a fool fights with the living, powerful God and he cannot be contested. No man is any match for God. Well, he was one of the great leaders of the world. And Herod found out. Found out. You can't fight against God. God's punishment can't be avoided. Look what Herod does. He kills the guards. Hey, that was kind of part of the deal. If you let the imprisoned go, how could they not? They didn't have a chance. Wouldn't it? That's just what happened. Well, the pride of Herod is here. The desire was to kill Peter. Didn't get it done. He wanted to gain favor with the Jews. He should have stopped there. But no, he goes north and it says he went down. That means he comes off the mountain of uh, Jerusalem there to fight God in another way. And it would have been wise to stop, just give up. But uh, he's angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, that whole area. And they come together with one accord. They ask for peace because their country was being fed by the king's country. And you know what? Remember, what is it? A time of what? Famine. They need some help. So they're really not under Herod's jurisdiction. But he's up there. He's mad at them. And they need some food. And Herod is bitter and intensely displeased with them. They had exasperated him. So he had cut them off and he didn't give them any food. No trades. They were hurting. They were starving. They couldn't trade. They didn't have any food. There was a great quarrel between the two cities and Herod. 
And in order to get into Herod's good graces, they make a friend of this guy by the name of uh, Blastus, the king's chamberlain, that maybe he could get to them, you know. They might have bribed him to be able to kind of be a go-between. They work out some kind of a peaceful arrangement. They want a truce. They wanted to pacify Herod. So verse 21, we know on a point of the day, Herod putting on the royal apparel and such. I'm just going to give you just a brief story on this and try to make this quick. If you read Josephus, you get to fill in the blanks here. Josephus, the Jewish historian. He writes it down for us. Tremendous amount of insight. This is his birthday. Herod's birthday. Sorry about that, Johnny. You get no glory on your birthday. No. <laughs> Johnny's not wanting any, but we want to at least have some fun with it anyway, right? We we let your birthday go on and on. <laughs> yeah. Huh? We sang too. We need to sing as he goes out tonight too. Okay. <laughs> Think it backwards. <laughs> a peace offering to hear it. It's a celebration. Now, he's he has distinguished officials, all the high officials, the providential officials, the, the distinguished positions that they have. They're all there. Tyre and Sidon is there. They make peace with him and uh, to open up. They want trade. They want to be able to get the food there. I mean, they're really hungry. <laughs> and he's there in his royal apparel before all the people. And you can imagine he's in this amphitheater. And oh my, they have uh, one um, kind of uh, tier of, uh, I guess, steps, um, places to sit on. Another tier and another tier and another tier. They're provided for people to cheer on this pompous leader. And so everybody's there. Anybody that's anybody is there. The first day is for Caesar. And they're raising up their voices. And of course, Caesar is God you know, to them. He's the leader of the, of the Roman world, uh, the world of that day. Day two is Herod's day. They gave it to Caesar the first day. Yeah, he falls underneath him. But now it's his turn. And uh, he wears his silver robe. Silver robe. Now, Frida has a little bit of silver around the neck here. Now, that's pretty shiny. The light hits it. And if you were out in the daytime sun, maybe at noon or something, it would probably be really bright. Johnny has to put on his sunglasses. But we're talking silver all the way up and down. That's what Josephus reported. And this is silver that just reflects. It just glitters. It just shone in in that sunlight, flashing in all His glorious array. Now He's going to speak. gives a great message to the people it's the voice of a God and not of a man the voice of a God and not of a man the voice of a God they're just flattering him and Tyre and Sidon is there and they're probably in on this leading it because they want to get back into the graces of him and uh, he accepts whatever they're saying and he doesn't say hey stop that I'm not a God stop right now you know and of course sometimes apostles would be worshipped Paul would be you know stop Get up. I'm only a man, right? That happened with Peter and such. What a fool this man is to rob God of His glory. So he fights against God and persecuting the church. Then he fights against God and taking all the glory. And Herod just collapsed instantly. And according to Josephus, he was carried away and he was eaten up by worms. Josephus said he was dead in five days. Now, what happens here in uh, he was struck right there he fell down just like that collapsed and of course it says he was eaten by worms and died it was a slow death five days and of course that doesn't take it away from the God, word of God right here it just said he was, he was struck down and of course it doesn't give the amount of time but that's what happened to him oh. 
a terrible way to die. A sickening death. A pompous fool. And I think God used a little sarcasm here. Here's a man taking in God's glory and then look what God does to him. The most humiliating way that it could be. And then you see verse 24. Isn't this great? But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. I'll build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I want to tell you something. There was a guy by the name of Ernest Hemingway. You remember him? A prolific writer, right? He wrote on, on one occasion that biblical morality was not going to impose itself on his life. He said, I am living proof that one can live any way he chooses and succeed. The audacity to say that. In an article he said, I have fought in revolutions. I have tumbled women. I have satisfied my desires. I stand as a living testimony to the fact that you can sin and get away with it. Ten years later, to the day that he had written that, he put a shotgun in his mouth and blew the back of his head off. That's interesting. You don't win when you fight God. It's devastating. Sinclair Lewis, one of the great writers, the toast of the literary world. Sinclair Lewis hated God. He hated Christianity. He hated Christ. He spewed out venom constantly. One book that he wrote was called Elmer Gantry. I remember that book. I think I had to read it in grade school. Didn't really. I don't even remember what it was about. I had to check it out. You find out that he was a. It was about a preacher that was a drunken man. He was a fornicator. And uh, he spent all of his time with booze, prostitutes, and getting rich off the expenses of other people. And what that was about was a slam in the face of God. That's the reason he wrote that book. It was to mock Christianity. He was hailed as the toast of the literary world, one of the great writers of that century. He was a genius, won all sorts of awards. Very few people know what happened to him? Here's what happened. He died as a slobbering drunk. He was in a third-rate alcoholic clinic. Third-rate alcoholic clinic in Rome, in somewhere in the back alleys, in an absolute and utter obscurity. Wow. These are the great men who mocked God. And we know that no glory goes to man. It all goes to God. They say those things. They say rather bold things. Say things against God's Word. Do things against God's Word. But uh, God's purposes cannot be frustrated when you see that verse 24. We win, folks. The Gospel just kept marching on. It's living proof. We have it here today and it keeps it's still marching in our times. The Word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Let's pray.